2: Coming up, we're going deep into the archive, maybe too deep, and excavating an old episode of Quiet, Please, from 1948. We're playing a slow-burn horror episode called The Thing on the Formal Board. And after, we're going to take it apart like vivisectionists. That's all coming up on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, it's me, David Reinstrom, the host of Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. Uh, But sometimes, in order to do that, we have to learn a little bit about the history of our medium. And with that, I'd like to introduce my co-host for today, Gabrielle Urbina, the writer and director of the sci-fi podcast, Wolf 359. Say hey to the people, Gabrielle.
1: Hey everyone, how's it going? What up? So glad to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, David. This is a pleasure.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure. So, Gabrielle, I first heard about this episode of Quiet, Please during a month of short essays that you did. Right. One a day in December
1: 2014. Yes. I'd been um, working on some longer writing projects during all of November and was kind of feeling feeling like I needed to do something a little bit quicker and a little bit scrappier and just sort of like turn out things a little bit quicker. So for all of December, I kind of set myself the challenge of, Every single day I'm going to write a short essay on a piece of radio that I really love. And so I just sat down and did that for every single day and covered new things, old things, just like anything that came to mind as a favorite and something that I wanted to write about.
2: Well, What struck me especially about your piece about Thing on the Forble Board, the piece that we're going to listen to today, was that you said it was one of your favorite pieces of not just radio fiction ever, but but of horror fiction
1: ever. Yeah. I can't think of something that has scared me more than the first time that I listened to this piece. So going by that marker, yeah, it's probably my favorite piece of horror fiction.
2: We should say at the jump, you know, that if you're the sort of person that scares easily at, like, jump scares, this is not that kind of scary. This is more of, like, a creeping, like, ooky kind of scary.
1: You're more scared after it's done than while it's happening is kind of the way that I think about it.
2: Well, Gabrielle, I I really like reading your writing about writing, which is why I asked you to come on the show today. You are very welcome. Um, And what I wanted to do was like plumb your brain after we listen to the piece Mm -hmm. and, and talk about craft and talk about the craft of writing fiction, the craft of writing fiction for audio um because I, i've I've read I've read so much of your writing about it, and i want I want to draw that out for the listener in a segment I would like to call uh, I'm not sure, which is another reason why I asked you to come on. <laughs> okay, um, we can come up with something.
1: How about something like welcome to going Deep with Gabrielle and David. Today, we're going to be listening to Willis Cooper's The Thing on the Forble board.
2: Alright, so there's there's your there's your introduction. Let me let me try mine. <clears throat> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the History Corner with David and Gabrielle.
1: You know, David, I think that those two intros just capture everything that there is to know about the two of us.
2: That that's fair.
1: So I think that now you have to use them both.
2: Done. So, before we get ahead of ourselves too much or give away really anything about the plot, is there anything else that you want to say about the thing on the four board, Gabriel?
1: I don't think so. I think that this is really one of those where you're really going to benefit from just going in with untainted ears and without knowing a lot about what exactly the story is and kind of getting to, like, really discover it. So I would just say, you know, draw the curtains get everything nice and quiet around you and enjoy
2: yeah turn off the lights if you dare <laughs> uh, and we'll we'll see you in about um, 25 minutes after you've heard the thing on the forble board
0: quiet please <phone rings> The Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Torval Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago, a little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike? I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call him roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, or a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're gonna be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a 4 board's no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because eh, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level... Yeah, sure they do. From the time I was a roughneck, we got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Natrona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That friend is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there... besides rock and oil and gas... Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells, trilobites mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe. Then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing, and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement, go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see, so we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Well, you see, a, a core drill is hollow, and as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's going into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for my supper. I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunewald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi,
3: Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? Yeah, all went to town. I'm the whole crew. You know, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd been here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh, I'm dead.
0: Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, oh, seven pork chops. And bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> we are gonna have a banquet. Hey,
3: where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at.
0: Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper.
3: Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? uh uh-huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. hmm
0: I don't see anybody. keep an eye on that pork chop, you won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. <laughs> like so.
3: When'd you finish cementing?
0: This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of hole, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home.
3: Funny about that water. Mm, how? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale.
0: Mm, ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. That's funny. Here, yeah, your pork chops done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks.
3: Oh man.
0: Good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, much obliged.
3: Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the straighter. And all you know is what comes out of the hole.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I'd like to go down there sometime if I
3: was little enough. (laughs) Never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look
0: at it. Well, why don't you where till you finish your supper?
3: I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish there was a screech i keep. The... What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, what did... You... Listen. What's eating you? You know, out of sworn there's somebody up there in that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. You gonna get those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked.
0: One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... I... Ah, What's just so
0: jittery about
3: Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm i just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. scared... Doggone Gunner. I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't
0: it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me, spiders scare the tar out of me.
3: Black widows. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh. That's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid.
0: Okay! So I picked up a flashlight, I turned around, and went outside, I found the car. and I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up, and when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the 4 board, I laughed. (laughs) Billy Grunewald and his ideas... Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, 4 board. Well, you've seen oil derricks, or Pictures of them? Do You know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the 4 board. Well, you see, a drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a thribble, four is a 4 when you pull a pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick with a traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. And then when a 4 of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cathead on the drawworks, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the foible board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again. You got all the pipe out. You see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the foible board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell.
3: Yay! What's what? the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? The... Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky, I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this.
0: And I did look. And what he was holding... Was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. No, oh, no, no, wait a minute. Hang on, I ain't done. I poked at the core of rock that looked like a uh, kind of petrified salami or something and then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants because right alongside the place where billy dug out the ring there was a mud covered but very unmistakable finger i picked it up and it was cold and it was heavy and it was solid rock at least it felt like solid rock And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could could still feel it, he said. But when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me. We finished it in one slug piece, and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from... On the foible board, 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow, spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. Things I could hear but I couldn't see up on the foible board. Billy Grunwald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream, <laughs> a crash inside <laughs> me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunwald lying on the floor, two feet away, with a broken neck. With a broken neck. And his left hand, well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I ran down to where Billy had left his car and I got in. I stepped on the starter and I couldn't get it to go. And then I remembered after i pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions.
3: Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pint, Ted. Well, what was he doing up in the football board? Did you threaten him, and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the formal boy? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know.
0: I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides,
3: how would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, so. it's mighty mysterious. Well, so it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there. I want to start drilling again, and I'm shorthanded. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in me pipe again? And well, oh, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, okay. Right. Let's get rolling. You got Steve up, Happy? I'm all set. All right, Porky, you go from the forward board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. And you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you'll get paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going.
0: So, okay, I go up on the 4 board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first four-bullet drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the (coughs) four-bullet. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself. two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more. And as far as I know, the abandoned Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable, and I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. You know what? There was something up there on the fourble board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road and the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked into the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around, there wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was a gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound the sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again, and it came from above my head. and... And I, and I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the 4 board. No, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. But there was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are!
3: Come out, or I'll start shooting!
0: And the stand of pipe shivered. And I thought, what can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like like jack straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the fourble board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I, I wish the face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body. I'll not tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. Spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well, come to an alien world, and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone, living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and mewed like a lost kitten. 20 years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible, that if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face. I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. But it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well, and when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still, or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike, Mike! There she is. Come on in, dear. The title of tonight's Quiet, Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunewald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy (laughs) was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet, Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend Albert April. Now, for the word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper.
3: Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional, at least I, for one, hope so. Next week the story is called Presto
0: Change, all, I'm sure. And so until next week at the same time. I am quietly yours. Ernest Chapel. All right.
2: And that was The Thing on the Forble Board, first broadcast in August of 1948. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Going Deep in the History Corner with Gabrielle Urbina and David Reinstrom. So that was super spooky.
1: (laughs) Isn't it? Like, it's really amazing how, you know, a lot of sort of that older fiction you kind of have to take with this grain of salt and you kind of have to graded on this historical curve. Mm-hmm. But there's something about that piece that is just so unnerving and so creepy, even going on 70 years since they first recorded it.
2: Yeah, no kidding. And and about that recording, that was done live in studio, right? None of that was uh, put together in post-production?
1: That's a really good question. I believe it was. Um, from what I can remember, Quiet Please was one of those maniacal shows where they were just, like, writing one show while they were rehearsing another episode, while they were recording an episode, while they were editing an episode, and just basically, like, cranking out one finished piece of radio every single week for weeks on end. Oh, my God. And you kind of... You even hear it at the end. Like, at the very end, you kind of get, like, Ernest Chappell bringing on Willis Cooper, the writer, to sort of kind of go... What's coming up next week? And then Willis Cooper kind of goes, next week we're going to be doing this, that, and the other. He does that for every single episode of the show. So, yeah, I think that that was all sort of like... Wow. All episodes of Quiet, Please were kind of assembled within the span of a week, which is completely insane to me.
2: So writing to recording all done in a week?
1: I think that maybe writing they were, you know, because by the time that they were making thing on the four billboard, board, they knew what the next episode was going to be. Right. So maybe that was a tiny little bit ahead. But I think that everything after that mm-hmm. was all done within a week.
2: What do you know about Willis Cooper? What can you tell me about the history of the production of Quiet, Please? And then after that lights out.
1: Uh, lights Out actually came first, if I remember correctly. Ah, um okay. And it's great. I love those as titles. Like, there's just something about the idea of we're making these horror shows, and there are these kind of horror shows about where even the title is like, please, like, you know, put on mute all these, like, sensory distractions around you. With the first one, Lights Out, just kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, turn out the lights. And then the second one, Quiet, Please, just kind of like, you know, all right. It is now time to, like, listen to us. Yeah, Willis Cooper is one of those guys who... I think that within his own time, he was this underappreciated genius. Okay. Because he was kind of this workman-like craftsperson for a lot of different radio shows in the 1930s. And kind of his big break was he got to create Lights Out, which was an anthology, kind of Twilight zone radio horror show.
2: Yeah, I read I read that uh, Rod Serling was very influenced by Lights Out. And yes, Quiet, uh, Rod
1: Serling loved uh, Willis Cooper. And almost immediately after he created Lights Out, there was some kind of fracas with the studio. And he was actually fired, or he stepped away. Whatever happened, it wasn't completely civil. And this kind of new hotshot writer called Arch Obler came on and took over. Mm-hmm. And Arch Obler is now remembered as this genius horror writer because of all the work that he did in Lights Out. And he was kind of known for putting on these really gory, really kind of shock horror stories on the radio, which is not what Wills Cooper wanted to do at all. Right. And after that, he kind of spent another 10 years just kind of being this writer for hire before the Mutual Broadcasting Company finally hired him again in the late 40s to run a show,
2: which was Quiet, Please. Yeah, what I like about Cooper is just how... Quiet and subtle and naturalistic, he asks Chapel to be.
1: He's a patient writer. He's so he's so patient. He just has this like great faith that you will pay attention and that you will, you know, register all these details in a way that a lot of other radio writers are kind of very much like, I need to throw so much at you to just like keep you engaged.
2: I've never read Moby Dick. This is gonna sound like a weird transition. I've never read Moby Dick, but I understand that the Chapters are kind of interleaved between plot and, like, Melville's monographs on whales. Right. Where he shows off what he knows about, like, the spermaceti genus and talks about, like, the very logistical and mechanical particulars of whaling. Yeah. And I really felt like that was what was going on during all of Porky's long asides about how, like, (laughs) a drill pipe is assembled. Yeah,
1: there is the sense of they're showing you how much frigging research they did um, and that they actually, like, found someone and, like, talked to them about how do these things work and just kind of, like, all the distinctions about, like, oh, this is what a board is and, like, you know, then it's a double, then it's a triple, then it's a four-ball and, like, you know, what you do with, like, when you find water and what kind of concrete. Um, there is this real sense that they found all these people and, like, really talked to them.
2: I would like to argue that that big monologue where he explains what a formal board is, Mm -hmm. is kind of meant to be a little boring on purpose. Agree or disagree? That's a good
1: question. I find it really compelling, personally.
2: I think it's compelling detail, but I also wonder if it's meant to kind of lull you into a sense of like, oh yeah, that's technically very interesting. That's like a very, wow, this guy really does know his stuff. Like to kind of create a sense of naturalism Mm -hmm. that... To pull us out of the idea that we are listening to an actor from New York. Right. But really that we're listening to a roughneck.
1: From somewhere in the middle of the country.
2: I think they're in California, actually. The San Fernando Valley. Because Billy Grunewald says that he had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. That's right. He did. I've only been in California for under a year.
1: Yeah, wow. I used to live in LA. I should have caught that. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They must be somewhere out in California. Where
2: is Oxnard? That's where my dad said that's where strawberries come from that in watsonville
1: hmm yeah does that sound right it's about uh it's about a mile outside of la i've been there oh okay no not a mile maybe like about an hour i'm sorry what am i saying other way around some other different measure of time and
2: distance. I was going to say a mile outside of Los Angeles is just like more is just Angeles. more
1: Los Angeles, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I think he's like a like a California roughneck. That
1: makes sense. You know, it's interesting because a lot of other episodes of Quiet Please kind of have that moment of I am now going to sit down and kind of bury you in like all the details of whatever the profession du jour is. Mm-hmm. Um like, there's an episode about an archaeological dig in Egypt that goes horribly wrong, and that's an episode where you will learn so much about Egyptology in those first 15 minutes okay. than you ever thought could possibly be crammed into, like, a piece of narrative fiction. And oftentimes those are kind of the moments in the Quiet Please episodes when I f- kind of feel Willis Cooper's you know, assorted interests kind of getting a little bit away from him. Forbleboard is one of the ones that really works for me. It's such a beautiful language that he's using too, like when he's talking about all these different beings and things that have been buried in like the ground since an age when Manhattan was under however many layers of ice. Mm -hmm. And just like the way that he describes it all is really kind of sumptuous and engaging for me in this particular one. And a lot of other ones, that's kind of when I... Tune out a little bit and wait for the plot to kick in.
2: Well, I think normally when you'd hear a monologue like that, it would be coming from the mouth of like an academic or a scientist. Right. And so to hear that understanding of geological history in the words of a like a working class person is more arresting in its way.
1: It is a statement, yeah. And it says something about who Porky is.
0: That
2: he's the sort of person that's attracted to the idea of this history being locked away inside the earth.
1: And he's not just there to do a job and the next year he might be working in some other menial physical labor job. He really kind of understands it and gets it and kind of sees the craft and the artistry in it.
2: So I want to talk to you about how you first encountered this piece. Right. And what it was like for you to hear it for the first time.
1: You know, a lot of people nowadays who kind of stumble into this piece, there's a lot of radio drama websites Mm -hmm. where if you spend enough time on them, eventually you'll get something like, oh, but if you want the scariest piece of radio drama ever made, listen to Thing on the 4 Board. And they'll kind of go into it with those auspices and kind of that idea of i'm about to listen to something incredibly scary i did not get that warning i did not get that disclaimer when i was in my teens i mentioned to a great writing professor that i had that i was interested in radio dramas and he very generously got me a usb with a bunch of radio drama things that he'd collected over the years and there was that's wonderful it was great Uh, It was one of the best presents that i've ever had um there was a lot of like P.G. Woodhouse adaptations in there, some Sherlock Holmes, some um, Lucille Fletcher, some Orson Wells. It was just like this very robust collection, and just kind of slipped in there with like no particular note, no particular warning, just like the next mp3 down the line is thing on the Forble board. And it was one of those, you know, I'm kind of listening to a bunch of these at home, kind of playing a Flash game while I'm listening, and I'm kind of getting to the point of, okay, it's kind of getting late, should I go to bed? All right, how long is the next one? Oh, half an hour. I'll listen to another one. <laughs> and so I end up listening to Thing on the 4 board at like 1 in the morning with no warning. Oh,
2: no. And
1: it's just one of those experiences where, you know, you kind of start half listening to it and then you're really listening to it. And then all of a sudden it's – you're not playing the computer game anymore and you're not checking your phone. All of a sudden you're just paying attention to the radio drama <laughs> and just looking around you and kind of counting the shadows and being – just hyper aware of everything around you because you're completely creeped out and completely kind of in alert mode and that's kind of where i was while i was listening to it and that's kind of where i stayed for like the next three hours after it was done
2: yeah i made sure to listen to it during the day because i had you know because i had all this this build-up around it
1: right there's a great um did you get a chance to look at the harlan ellison story that i sent you i
2: did the the Patton oswald yeah. thing about harlan ellison yeah we should say uh, comedian Patton Oswald and science fiction writer Harlan Ellison.
1: Yes, two sort of, like, really big pop culture authorities. Patton Oswald had been listening to a marathon of old-time radio that they'd done uh, for Halloween. And he'd caught the first half of Thing on the Forble Board, but not the second half. And sometime later, he was talking to Harlan Ellison, who he knew was a big fan of old-time radio. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned that he'd heard the first half of Thing on the Forble Board and Harlan Ellison kind of went, "Oh my god, you have to go listen to the second half." And the thing that he said that I was like, "Yes, I was there. I had that experience." was he kind of said, "And when you listen to the back half, just imagine me as a 14-year-old kid listening to that."
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: it just comes on, no disclaimer, no warning, no, you know, viewer discretion advised. Just that bam. And he said, I've listened to it once, and I never have to listen to it ever again. <laughs> I just remember it so clearly and so vividly.
2: Is it as scary to you now?
1: It is. Um, About 80% of it has kind of gotten to a place where, oh, I really appreciate the craft, and I'm kind of... Now the things that were unsettling and creepy are kind of getting to a point of, okay, I see how, when they find the finger, that's kind of leading you to this image that's going to come up later. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, that develops. When you get to the end and, you know, Mike comes in to eat you, the listener, (laughs) and those that mewing sound, that's what gets me. Like, no amount of intellectual analysis or academic preparation will ever get me to the place where that's not just viscerally revolting and just makes my skin crawl um there's something about cecil roy's performance as mike that is just it bypasses any kind of higher level cerebral activity in my brain it just goes straight to the lizard brain and makes me freak out
2: is it is it because the monster has like a little girl's face and it's making that sound and this, like, and the 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 narrator of the story is like sexually attracted to a little girl. Is that part of the revulsion that it's like this? Ah, oh, oh, why? That's part of it.
1: That's like that's a huge part of it. Like there is kind of something that is like very sexually invasive and weird about it, and kind of like profoundly wrong in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. I think the line that that got me was he was like, I just couldn't stay away from that pathetic little face. Yes, yes. And that, like, hints at some, like, really deep, fucked up, like, power dynamic that he was craving. That really bothered me a lot.
1: And it's such a, like, insanely smart script. Mm -hmm. Because Porky's line is, I'm afraid that I've fallen. And he doesn't finish the sentence. But mentally, you finish the sentence. You know exactly what he's fallen in. Mm -hmm. Um. And just makes it all the creepier and just has, like, all these, like, very smart ways of getting directly under your skin. And the other thing, I mean, so, like, all of that is a huge part of it. But then the other part of it is the rest of the monster, which is, you know, all we know is that Porky says, I'm really afraid of spiders. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to describing the monster's body, he just kind of mentions again, like, oh, I'm afraid of spiders, And doesn't give you any more information. And so your mind just makes it into whatever spider-like thing is the most unsettling for you. Yeah, And it's just all of those things combined with that vocal performance, which I think um, it kind of reminds me of like the Nazgul screeches from The Lord of the Rings. Just Mm -hmm. this thing that is so viscerally unnerving and so viscerally kind of like, you know, inhuman while still being weirdly identifiable as a like, screech made by a human mouth. Yeah. All of that cocktail put together is I think what like, gets to me every single time, even years later.
2: So, I I listened to it for the third time with my partner Jillian. And she was like, this isn't so scary. I feel like I make these noises when I wake up every day. <laughs> like that and so I took I took video of her making like weird mic noises at me maybe we'll put that up on twitter that's great but yeah now you know I, I played it for her this morning and now I'm afraid that tonight like long after I've gone to bed she'll just kind of like creep over and go yeah.
1: that's 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 not something that I would mess with like I would not run those experiments with my own personal mm-hmm. life but that would
2: not be a kind thing if you're listening, sweet pea. And you've done it. <laughs> so the sound of Mike is really compelling. Mm-hmm. The, the, way, the way it's written is really compelling in terms of the detail and also in terms of, I think, the dialect that is used doesn't seem particularly false to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what people sounded like for real in 1948, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's trying too hard. To be It doesn't
1: set it doesn't set off those flags. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm an old school Hollywood guy. I love like a lot of movies from like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But by God, sometimes it's like Kirk Douglas pulls up in a car and is like, Howdy, I'm here a prospector from Kansas. And you're like, No, you're not. You really aren't, buddy. Like, you know, you're you're really not. Um Ernest Chapel. If you were a oil rigger from California in the 40s, Mm -hmm. you might be able to kind of spot like, oh, no one would ever kind of like say it that way. Or no, 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 I don't buy that he would pronounce it that way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound disingenuous to me and to my 21st century ears.
2: I think it's because it's it's really kind of subtle in kind of the dialect grammar choices that are made. Right. So like when he's talking about in the past tense... When you and I would say, I ran down to the car, he says, I run down to the car, and I begun to start. Mm -hmm. But he he doesn't, like, hit on it the way that I think a lesser voice actor would try and emphasize the difference from standard American dialect. Right. I don't know.
1: No, I think that you're right. And I'm just kind of mentally running through a bunch of other quiet please episodes in my head and kind of thinking about how does he adapt to other times mm-hmm. when he does have to play say the highfalutin professor from New York City or you know the person who is even further down the social ladder than even someone like Porky is and i think that he is he had a tremendous amount of faith in the willis cooper scripts because he didn't sort of feel the need to exaggerate those things like what you were saying he kind of really knew that simply saying those words in kind of a straightforward and unaffected manner would oftentimes yield the more genuine sounding and the more compelling result. Sure, Which, again, is very kind of unusual for a radio piece from this time.
2: Yeah, I think when people think of old-time radio... They don't really think of things being performed with this level of naturalism.
1: And a lot of the times they weren't. A lot of the times you have Vincent Price kind of bouncing off the walls. Mm-hmm. And that's great in its own way, but sure. it's not sort of this understated take on things.
2: Well, so I guess I have a question from a place of ignorance about the history of naturalistic acting that I'm wondering if if you have some historical perspective on.
1: I... Perhaps will and perhaps will not. I'm not an expert in the matter, but I know a couple of things that I've picked up just from hanging around with actors.
2: Do you know whether or not, um, like, the method, like Stanislavski's method, played into naturalism in acting around, like, is it a post-war thing where we started getting a more naturalistic style? Because I think every generation has a different definition of what realism or naturalism is or places different values on on acting and every
1: culture yeah absolutely that's a really 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 good question the best that i can say is that this feels a bit early relative to most other acting that i know in terms of when i can think of american acting sort of coming into kind of this, like, very naturalistic, very understated place.
2: Like, I think of that as being something from the mid-century, but I think of it as being, like, maybe a decade or or six to eight years after this was recorded. Like, I think of this as being a the method taking over Hollywood as being something as part of the mid to late 50s.
1: You know what it might also be? Mm. Um, if I remember correctly, Ernest Chappell was not a very prolific... Actor. He was a news anchor. He was someone who was on the radio a lot giving news reports and kind of being this, just the facts, ma'am. I'm here to tell you in my beautiful, wonderful, mellifluous voice Uh what is going on. And Quiet Please was kind of his, just just as it was Willis Cooper's kind of attempt to kind of get back into running his own show, it was Ernest Chappell's attempt at I am now going to be an actor and sort of do um, scripted material. So part of that may be thanks to the fact that he is coming at it with kind of this vocal and if not performance, definitely kind of performative training, Mm -hmm. but that it wasn't perhaps based on the theatrical school of thought or it wasn't kind of based on like the traditions that were dominating the stage at that time.
2: Interesting. Okay, I buy that because uh, I don't I don't think that this has aged very badly in the last seventy years
1: no there's a couple of quiet pleases that you're like that was from the forties and mm. it should have stayed in the forties this has remained very vital
2: like I, I I snorted a little bit the first time Porky says, oh my wife's probably in the kitchen somewhere like so dismissive I was like, oh Christ what is this gonna be right um but then that, that assumption really roars back in the final 40 seconds Yes. of what it means for Mike to be in the kitchen. You know,
1: and there is sort of like that moment when you kind of think that that's going to come back in a certain way. Because you're like, all right, so this guy, he's not treating his wife very well.
2: Mm-hmm. How's
1: that going to like come back into it? Right. And it, it ends up being a completely different thing that was going to come back and haunt you from that.
2: Yeah. How has this show impacted the writing that you've done? in the years since you first heard it?
1: I think that for me, it has largely been a proof of concept of kind of this idea of people will get it. People will kind of understand. People will pick up on the detail. People will really kind of pay that close of an attention to something that you're doing. Um, Everyone that works on Wolf Three Fifty Nine especially in the creative team, all of our formal training and our writing training was really kind of very much aimed at film. And when you make the transition from film to radio, you all of a sudden get this impulse of, I'm going to explain everything three or four, maybe even five times. (laughs) And I'm going to make it super loud and super clear because, oh my God, people are not going to get it without the visuals. And then you listen to something like this, where yes, there is a ton of narration. Yes, everything is kind of directly explained to you in a vocal way. But it is kind of this like very patient and this very restrained piece in terms of how it lets you put things together. And it doesn't always go back and sort of like completely tie things up because it's smart enough in knowing that you will do that as... An audience member and that you're gonna like tie those things up sure so that i think has been the major 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 thing for me
2: so there's a point when they're going through the core sample when billy Grunwald finds the core sample and there's that sting when they find the ring they find the ring and then there's an organ sting and then porky interrupts the organ sting just mm-hmm. say wait, wait wait that wasn't all that wasn't the only thing
1: right 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 and you sort of feel yourself kind of getting out of your chair as the audience person in the story just kind of being like oh all right you found a ring that was kind of creepy what's next and it's like no hang on hang on i'm not done mm-hmm.
2: do you think that's breaking the fourth wall or do you think he's just addressing like does does porky know that there's like a like a big dramatic sting under it and and he's like no 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 no, no. you're 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 hitting the wrong part you're accenting the wrong thing
1: There's a lot of kind of those interesting metafictional things within Quiet, Please. So I think that it is sort of him directing the music of the show at like, no, hang on a second. Like, you know, if you think that's creepy, oh, just you wait. Mm -hmm. We're only getting started. There's another episode where he actually um, tells the band to play louder. (laughs) Uh, He kind of like directs the music to like, you know, you're not selling the emotion enough. Come on, like, get up at my level
2: that's really funny
1: so yeah no they kind of do have these very playful touches in the middle of these things there's another one where you kind of hear a line and then you sort of hear ernest chapel kind of go that's what i wish that i would told him mm-hmm. but just for like a moment you really think that he just like told his boss to go screw himself or something and then is just kind of like oh no hang on you're kind of playing with all of the assumptions and playing with all the crafts of radio. Sure. Um and making that sort of this like very fluid, kind of very metafictional playground for your stories. That's really interesting. Let me ask let me ask you something. Yeah. As someone who is relatively new to this piece of radio, did you find it scary? Did you find it creepy? Like do you think that it earns its place as kind of the creepiest piece of old time radio or are you slightly more with your partner
2: i think i think creepy is a better descriptor than scary for this sure now as a as a piece of background like i scare really easily i do too yeah like horror in general like it's been like a real struggle of inertia for me to listen to all the wonderful horror radio that's happening in the podcasting world right now. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I know it's good, you know. Right, right, right. But I don't want to give short shrift to an entire genre that is extremely successful on radio, you know, in the audio medium. Uh, and so I'm always, it's always like a big struggle for me to be like, boop, okay, I'm playing it now, um, and and listening to this piece. Wasn't like jump out of my skin. Ah, I it probably would have been if I'd been listening in bed at night with the lights off with my partner asleep next to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when that piece ended, I would have been like, Oh god, what if Jillian's a secret stone spider centaur, <laughs> right? And she's gonna eat me while I'm asleep, right? The fear of everyone in a relationship, yes,
1: yes, classic Mike syndrome. <laughs>
2: I think the feeling that I got from it was kind of a pleasurable shudder of revulsion, if that makes sense. I was like, right. ah, ah, "That's that's <laughs> good. That's real good. Yeah. That's the good stuff, that's messed up, you know? Yes. Um, which is not a feeling that I, I get very often from the stuff that I listen to.
1: And it's not a feeling that a lot of people are interested in evoking. Right. A lot of people immediately go for the jugular right. in kind of that, like, I want to get someone to scream out loud. Mm-hmm.
2: That's not fun for me. I don't like that.
1: I think it has its time and place, and most of those times and places are outside of my life.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm not saying it's it's not a, a tactic without value. It's just not something that I personally enjoy. Oh,
1: no, absolutely.
2: I, I know that there are plenty of people that I, whom I really respect, uh, who I think have good taste, that are, like, scare junkies.
1: And horror junkies, yeah. And
2: horror, yeah, like I, I don't I'm not a I'm not a roller coaster person, you know. I, I would never I would never jump out of a, uh, an airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, but I recognize that people do that and they have tons of fun doing those things.
1: Right. You just get a different kind of thrills in your life.
2: Yeah. So so the effect of that piece on me was was kind of like simmering then and then slowly enveloping sense of tingly horror.
1: Hey, that's that's good, man. Yeah. If somebody said that about my writing, I would take that to the bank. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting because we're we're writing a new not quite horror, but kind of scary, tense episode for Wolf 359 because we realized that with our current schedule, we're gonna have an episode coming out on Monday, the thirty-first of October. Ooh. So kind of listening to this and getting to think about it again has been helpful. As me and Sarah Shackett, my writing partner, put together kind of a new episode that is very much in that, like, creepy, slowly simmering, what is wrong with the situation, I know something is wrong with the situation, I can't put my finger on it, Mm -hmm. kind of a world. So this has been very helpful to kind of be able to, like, go through this again and really kind of think about the way that, you know, it's really one big scare at the end he kind of doesn't really try to, like, scare you until the very, very end when you get that moment of, like you said, sort of that, like, pleasant revulsion feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And just kind of, like, remembering that of, like, you don't need to be scaring someone every five minutes. You can just be building and kind of seeding the things that are going to all pay off in one really good, creepy moment at the end. That has been a good lesson to kind of bring forward.
2: So it's kind of like a shaggy dog story, isn't it?
1: A little bit, a little bit, yeah.
2: I mean, how is writing horror similar to writing comedy in that regard? Because it seems like this big scare payoff is fundamentally very similar to a punchline.
1: It's very similar to a joke. And it's all about the fact that you have to do so much of the work mm-hmm. um, as a listener and as the audience member. This is something that I've been trying to kind of articulate my thoughts on this for some time, because one of the things that I'm always fascinated by is I don't see a lot of romance on the radio. Hmm. Or if we do see it, it's usually handled the way that, you know, Carlos and Cecil's relationship in Nightvale is handled, where it's a part of the character's lives, but you kind of get more about it rather than scenes depicting it within the program. And I think that there is something to be said for, with romance, we kind of do like to get the complete package and we do like to be able to get, like, the hero and the heroine kissing and we do like to sort of, like, see it realized. Mm -hmm. With comedy and with horror, there's an element of, if we just get it fully realized, that can sometimes be very scary. But the moment that we have to actualize it ourselves in our head, the moment that it's not just where instead of four, you're going kind to of get this really unsettling two and this really horrifying two and you have to put it together mm-hmm. and realize this unspeakably terrible four, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, that is so much scarier.
2: Yeah, we were talking about this, this, this idea of synthesis on Twitter a couple weeks ago. About how this, the scariest stories you can tell or you can hear are the ones that you create for your own mind. Yeah.
1: There's a fantastic essay on a Stephen King book called Dance Macabre. Okay. Where it's basically an entire book about him talking about the craft of horror. And he's talking about radio specifically. And he's talking about how the classic problem in a horror film is that, you know, you're showing a creepy door and there's some like unsettling scratching coming from the door and you're kind of going like oh god what's behind the door what's behind the door mm-hmm. and you open the door and it's this horrifying bloody disgusting evil hungry looking werewolf behind the door and even if 90% of you is going oh god that thing looks horrible there's always a part of you that's kind of going whoo you know man for a second there i was worried that it was going to be 10 Horrible, creepy, hungry-looking werewolves. (laughs) Sure. All right, one I can handle, no problem. Sure. With radio, you don't get that moment, because since it's always filtered through your perceptions and through your insecurities, that part of your mind that's kind of going, oh, God, oh, God, what if, that is never quite fully off the hook, because even if it is only one werewolf, that part of your mind makes it as disgusting and as hungry and as deranged looking as you can possibly sort of need it to be to be fully scared. And I think likewise with comedy, there is, you know, so much of comedy is kind of based on that aha moment of, like, the clouds part, all of a sudden you understand what is happening. And That kind of, you know, just triggers this, like, euphoric feeling inside of you. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, part of also why we laugh, even when we sometimes get to, like, horrifying reactions. Like, you know, just that moment of, I just, like, connected all of the dots. That is something that is inherently jubilant and euphoric in us.
2: Sure. I definitely laughed a little bit on my first listen.
1: To Thing on the 4 board To this piece. I think that that is a not uncommon reaction to really now just finally getting how all of it comes together.
2: Like the first time I heard Mike's voice, I laughed a little bit, and then the laughter kinda became less and less.
1: It's such a like this congruous element. Mm-hmm. You know, of all the things that he could throw at you, he throws at you this like little girl's voice, and all of a sudden it's like,
2: What is going on here? So Gabrielle, I think I think that probably does us for now. Would you agree? I think for now, that's 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 deep enough.
1: We don't want to over explain anything after all.
2: Right. We, we don't want to dig too deep. Yeah, exactly. Because who knows what might be lurking. Yes. Uh, so, folks, that about brings us to a close for this week's episode. But before we go, I want to thank Gabriel Urbina again for coming on the show today.
1: Gabriel, thank you so much. No, thank you. This was a pleasure. And thank you guys for putting up with all my rambling and all my... Open-ended observations.
2: Uh, Would you like to do this again?
1: I would love to do this again. Anytime you want me, I'm here.
2: Fabulous. Gabrielle, tell the good people about Wolf 359 and where we can find him and where we can find you. Sure. Wolf 359 is a
1: space audio drama. It's about four people who, at the start of the show, have been stuck on a space station for a year and a half. And what happens when you are trapped with three really big, really different, really conflictive personalities... Farther away from anyone else than anyone has ever been. You can find it on iTunes and all of the usual podcasting services. Or you can hit us up at wolf359.fm. That's our website, www.wolf359.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at KindaEvilGenius.
2: And after you've heard some of Wolf 359, please feel free to come on back and listen to our interview right here on Radio Drama Revival. Yes. With two of the show's stars, Emma Shijarko and Zach Valente.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the good one. That's where he got the eloquent people. So definitely check that out.
2: <laughs> Stop it. Shall we credit some credits?
1: Sure. Our show's music is provided by DJ Stranger Danger out of beautiful Oakland, California, where Roman Mars is happy to tell you about the secret stairs that litter the Oakland and Berkeley Hills, but he'll never tell you about
2: the secret wells and chasms. Will you, Roman? Our producers are Matthew Boudreaux and Eli McElvain, and Eli has thoughtfully stepped up in the month of August to help out as the Boudreaux get ready to ship their marvelous kid Javert off to school. Much love, Eli. Thank you.
1: Our researchers are Monique Boudreau and Heather Cohen, and they don't use computers so much as take stethoscopes and put them up against a burning coal seam in Centralia, Pennsylvania that won't stop screaming. The coal seam knows all your secrets, and it must shout them at maximum volume to be heard.
2: Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalgh, who, no joke, travels to abandoned mills and hospitals in Maine to record audio dramas on location, and who, yes joke, once traveled 7,313 feet below the surface of the earth just to say he could. I'm David Reinstrom.
1: And I'm Gabriel
2: Urbina. Thank you so much for going deep with us today.
3: That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff.
0: Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again.